0: We're going to look at Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. And Let me give you just a little bit of an update for those of us who haven't been around the past few weeks. In 605 B.C., okay, so let's go back into ancient history. The nation who has world power, world dominance, is the nation of Babylon. Okay, it is, um, It's a war machine. And there's a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who's at its helm. And he has wanted to distinguish himself from his father, the first Nebuchadnezzar. And so he builds uh, the capital of Babylon into something that's just, it was unrivaled. It was the most magnificent city the world had ever seen. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He had a, a queen who said she'd come from a more verdant place. And she said, it's just too dry here in what we call Iraq. And so he said, well, let's make an oasis. And so there's this water is moved. I mean, it's just amazing. So every spring, he decides, oh, I wonder where I can expand my empire to today. And he looks to his west, and he sees the little nation of Israel, with their capital of Jerusalem, and he says, let's go there. So in 605 B.C., they march in, they raid the temple, they easily overwhelm the city, and as he goes back to his capital... He not only takes all the artifacts that were in the Jewish temple, but he takes with him, as was his custom, the elite of the nation. He takes the young men who are the most intelligent, um, the most attractive, the most athletic. The description is those who have no flaws. And this is part of how he had built his empire. He brings them into his actual palace He castrates these young men, and then he puts them in a three-year program of indoctrination where they learn everything from Babylonian magic, dark arts, to literature, to law. And then he uses these men in his kingdom as pawns to carry out his activities. So he has just created this multi-ethnic, pluralistic, polytheistic world that is at the center of his kingdom. And he's allowed great autonomy. He's accommodated all of their distinct religions. Their ancient gods that their forefathers had worshipped came in their hearts to this capital of Babylon. But in chapter 3, we're actually not going to read about Daniel. He's not a part of the story, but three of the men who were abducted with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, face a challenge and they're going to have to take a stand and choose not to bow so this is what Nebuchadnezzar's done he's built a statue okay a massive statue it's 90 feet tall so if I'm not mistaken I think right above me to the uh, where the curtains would come is 26 feet so can you imagine 90 feet we're talking well beyond the, the height of this roof And it's a massive bronze statue and it's likely it's to their God, their primary deity in Babylon, Marduk. Marduk. They call him Bel, which is a term that means the Lord. And so they've built this out of gold. He puts it out on the plain of Dura, which is this flat place, so it stands out. And he's going to require everyone to worship. Let's read together, Daniel chapter 3. Let's read about how you survive in Babylon. We've learned about the fact that... All types of things can happen to you, but you never have to become a Babylonian, even when you live in Babylon. Chapter 2, we looked at this idea that those who are following the Lord, even in the midst of Babylon, an imperfect culture, can be the influential minority. Let's see what chapter 3 has. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. These are these men from all over the world to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So it's a big dedication ceremony. He's going to require them all to bow. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music. Everybody in the room, play the zither. Apparently this is a lost instrument, okay? Bring it back. I'd love it. Bring it back. I want to hear you. You must, when you hear this song, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. This is one of the forms of public execution that the Babylonians had developed. It was burning to death. They created a a pit, you loaded it with wood and you throw people in there. Of course, it was visceral as you heard them facing their death. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations, And peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. So, there's three men out of this whole kingdom who say, We're not going to bow. We we can't bow down and worship the God Marduk, it's beyond what we can do. We've lived in Babylon. These guys are probably in their early 20s at this point. They've already been promoted. They have influence in the king. They've distinguished themselves. They've been very, very successful in terms of impacting Babylon. They said, we can dress like Babylonians. You can teach us Babylonian ways. You, You can make us speak the language. But we cannot. We cannot worship this other God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able. Love that phrase. He's able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, but, even if he does not, even if he doesn't meet our expectations, even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude Toward them changed. He had respected them. He had promoted them. No longer. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes. Now why does it mention that? Because it's all flammable. All right? Like they're fully dressed and they're going to be thrown in were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. (laughs) Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there are three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, Your Majesty. He said, but look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Now, for those of you who grew up in the church, and I know not all of us has uh, grown up in the church, you kind of remember this. Do you remember the old felt board stories? Okay, so there's a a board and you have these little figures and you put on here Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they refuse to worship. So you put flames over the top of them and then you add a fourth person in. It's kind of this, you know, it's this nice little story. But I love that this is filled with helpful instructions for anyone who's living in Babylon. Anyone who's living in an imperfect culture. Anyone who's living in a culture where there is hostility that is pluralistic and that is polytheistic, here's the first thing, the first question I want to ask. Who or what will I bow down to? Who or what will I bow to? So it's a comedy and culture that Nebuchadnezzar has created in Babylon. He's allowed them to worship their own gods. He's taught them all about the Babylonian gods and the Babylonian religion. But he said, hey, you know what? You can do your own thing. Whatever you do in private, whoever you worship, that's that's between you and your gods. But here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask that when I make the the song play, that everybody, no matter where you're at, you bow down, you figure out where you're at in terms of where my statue is, and you fall down, and this is, you know, of course, Middle Eastern, this is traditional, you fall down and face first, and you worship my God. And it's a multicultural society. It's pluralistic. Everybody's like, all right, I guess we can do that, because you added with that and if you don't, you're going to get cooked, okay? Well, all right. I, I mean, you're going to let me worship my own God, but if you want me to, I'll worship your God, except for these, these three guys. These three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's saying, oh, we've, we've worked hard for you. We, we didn't want to be here, but this is where we ended up. This is this destiny, and we're not sure what's going on. But Nebuchadnezzar, you've you've asked us to cross a line that we can't cross. We can't go there. I want to ask you a few questions. Number one would be this. Will I privatize my worship? See, when you live in Babylon, here's a tendency. Hey, if you want to be religious, that's great. That's great. Just keep it to yourself. Don't, don't ever, don't ever like try to push that off on someone else. Listen, you believe what you want, we don't care. But don't make us deal with your religious beliefs. Privatize it, lock it away, it's your own. This is a challenge in Babylon. This is a challenge in every culture. Hey, you believe what you want, but don't let it bleed into your everyday life. Keep it private. It's between you and your gods. Here's the second question, not just will I privatize my worship, but will I syncretize my faith? Okay, let me explain this word syncretize. It literally means to pick and choose what you want in terms of faith, in terms of God, and you mash up different religions to customize your own religion. Now people like customize their cars, I want to put these wheels on it. I want to put this exhaust. So it's distinctly mine. Well, there's a tendency in religion when you live in a Babylon, a pluralistic, polytheistic society, where you say, you know what I like? I like this part of Eastern mysticism. And I like these teachings of Jesus. And I like this thought and that thought. And all of these are a little difficult, and I think there are kicks, so I'm going to push those to the side. And I am going to make my own religion. Oprah Winfrey. I, I, I can make, and it's going to help me be a good person. Here's the problem with that. You just created your own God. You made your very own God. You pick and you choose and you syncretize what you like. And you put it together. And then here's the next question. Not just will I syncretize, but will I compartmentalize my beliefs? Will I decide, will this, there's this part of me that believes in God that is surrendered. But then the, the rest of me, like, this is the sacred part of my life. And then this is the secular part of my life. And, and, and my work and my relationships and my hobbies, those aren't spiritual things. So I'm going to just put my faith into a single compartment in my life. Now, everybody in the room would say, you know, Nate, we're doing okay on this. Quit making such a big deal of it. Anybody in the room recently bowed down to the god Marduk in a 90-foot statue? Nobody, right? It's, we just don't do that. It's, it's like there's a, there's a passage in Deuteronomy. It's the one law that I have kept my entire life and I've never failed. It says do not eat bats. <laughs> Anybody in the room ever violated that one? Anybody ever look at a bat and go, hmm, I wonder if it tastes like chicken? No. You don't eat bats, right? So we're all like, we're in the clear. We've never bowed down to the God Marduk. But but here's the issue. Marduk isn't the only God out there. These three young men have been raised with at the center of their culture the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Given to Moses. God comes down and rather than giving them volumes, he says, "Here's, here's the ten things these, these, are the, these are the boundaries. And if you could live within these 10 things, you'd be more fully human than you could ever imagine. This is the safest place. This is where you thrive. This is where you're abundant. And the number one commandment, the number one commandment, let's read it together. This is from Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You, you, you don't worship creation. You're missing the forest for the trees. It's the creator. Don't worship his creation. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And Catch this phrase. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I know what it's like to be jealous. I look at what somebody else has and goes, man, I deserve that. I wish I had that. It's the only place where you'll find God described as being jealous. You know what he's jealous for? The human heart. He looks, he looks at you and he says, I love you so much and so completely. You, you are my daughter, you are my son. And when it comes to what you bow down to and what you worship, I won't share you with anything else. You're mine. I'm jealous for your worship. So a God isn't just a statue that they make or you know, a little idol that you put in your house. See, the problem with idols or other gods is they're not always as obvious as we might anticipate. I really think a god, an idol, is anything that I look to, to find hope, to find peace, to find salvation, to find comfort. And so a god, if if I'm looking to it to save me, a god can be an addiction. That I bow down and I worship a substance because it brings me a sense of relief and peace. It could be a religious endeavor. Is I think my behavior brings me salvation, so my idol is my religion. It could be a hobby. This is what I look to to find my sense of identity in my life. It could be a vocation. I'm locked up. But this is where I find my sense of meaning. This is where I find purpose, and so my job can become an idol. It's anything that I bow down to and I serve. And God says, don't have any gods before me. I want to be who you look to, to find salvation and hope and deliverance and strength. And I'm jealous. I don't want to share you with anything else. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, it's three people out of thousands say, oh Nebuchadnezzar, we've done everything you've asked. But our God's jealous. And we can't compartmentalize, we can't privatize our faith. We can't, you know, create our own syncretic faith. We worship one God and we worship Him only. And it's the first of our Ten Commandments. And so you can do what you want to us, but we won't bow. We can't bow refuse I, I get it. It's a pluralistic society. I get it. You're accommodating. I get it that we could go home and we could worship our God. And maybe we could bow down and nobody would think twice. But for us, this is the line in the sand living in Babylon that we just refuse to cross. You know, this is, this is what got the early church in hot water with the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire was very accommodating. One of the brilliant things they did is they learned from people like Babylon. They said, you know, as we conquer more and more land, we'll just let them worship their local deities. That's absolutely fine. We'll be a pluralistic kingdom, pluralistic empire. And so the, the Germanic tribes worship their gods, and, and the, the Celts worship their own gods, and the people in North Africa, you just worship your own gods. And so they allowed just about anything to happen. It was like anything goes hey, your God, whatever. Romans knew who their gods were, but go ahead and worship your own gods. Until, until, after the life of Jesus, some of the emperors of Rome started getting a little bit more insecure and a little bit more prideful. And they declared themselves the sons of God. They said, you know, look at this empire that we lead. We're not just humans, we're part of the divine world we are the sons of god and they felt like worshiping one god they could they could be polytheistic. everybody in the in the empire could worship whoever they wanted but you had to worship the emperor and so this is the phrase that was spread throughout the roman empire you had to say this you had to say caesar is lord caesar is lord how do you enforce this Well, they took the marketplaces. That's where everybody had to come. No matter where you lived in the Roman Empire, if you were a farmer, you had to bring what you made, whatever it was, into the marketplace. If you needed to buy food for your family, you had to go to the marketplace. So Roman soldiers throughout the vast expanse of the Roman Empire set up walls around the local marketplaces, and they were told this. Anybody who wants to buy, who wants to sell, has to bring a tax. You give the tax to the local Roman soldier and you bow one knee. We're not going to make you bow everything, just one knee. And you said this phrase, Caesar is Lord. Then, in order to acknowledge that you had said Caesar is Lord, they took tar, this black tar, out of a jar and they placed it on your right hand or on your forehead. Revelation talks about it being the mark of the beast. And once you had received the mark, you were free to go in, participate in the economy of the land. Everybody in the Roman Empire said, sure, whatever. Caesar's Lord, I don't even mean it. I think he's just a guy, but don't tell anybody. But if that's what I have to do, I'll believe what I want in my own heart, but if I have to do it, accept the followers of Jesus. They were the thorn in the side of the Roman Empire. All throughout the Roman Empire, these people who followed what they thought was a bizarre teaching of some Jewish rabbi from an obscure part of their empire who they had executed on a cross. They felt like they had absolutely humiliated this man. And you're telling me those guys that follow this Yeshua, this Jesus, they won't bow down and say Caesar is Lord? And that's when the persecution broke out. Because the church said, we can live in your empire. We can participate. We can make it better. We can enhance. We can start businesses. We can help people who are hurting. We can do whatever you want. We can speak the Roman language. We can. But here's what we can't do. We can never bow our knee to anyone but Jesus. This is the most important question that any human being will ever face. It is more important than your political beliefs. It is more important than who you would choose to marry, what you would do for a vocation. It's this, who or what will you bow to? Where will you find hope? What will you worship? What will you give yourself to? And if you have not specifically addressed that question, you'll end up bowing your knee to something good that becomes a God. You take away one o. It was good. But a good thing becomes a God thing. Who or what will I worship? Here's the second thing. It's this question. Is my obedience dependent on on my rescue? Is my obedience dependent on my rescue? This brings us back to verse 18 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before this infuriated man, Nebuchadnezzar, and they say this. They say, listen, we have every hope that our God is going to deliver us. We know the consequences. We know that we can't bow to your God, but even if he does not, Even if our God doesn't show up, even if you cook us alive, we still can't bow our knee. God may not meet our expectations. God may not rescue us. We may experience unimaginable pain. We may be humiliated. You may make a spectacle of us, but our obedience to our God is not dependent on our God meeting our expectations. Our faith in him is not transactional. You know what transactional faith is? It's this, it creeps all too often into the followers of Jesus. This idea that God is out there and all he wants to do is bless me, but I have to do all the right things in order to earn his blessing. And so God ends up like this cosmic vending machine. And I I live my life this way, like, Oh, boy, okay, another day. I better put in, God, I read the Bible. I put that in, and God, I'm not going to cuss all day. And, oh, I'm going to be really nice. I let somebody in in terms of traffic. I was leaving church, and I made space, and somebody got in front of me. Nice person, aren't I? Right? And, God, I I didn't kick the dog today, and... (laughs) Um, look, I did all these things. And then we stand back and we're like, okay, God, I did my part. All my good behavior. And now I'm going to push a button. And I want to hear it. you You know that sound that comes out of a vending machine? Thunk, the thunk, thunk. <laughs> I want to hear thunk, the thunk, thunk, followed by some bonus. Thunk, the thunk, thunk, with thunk, the thunk, thunk. <laughs> I want the soft drink and the candy bar. Or, you know that really rare time where two candy bars fall out? You're like yes, unbelievable, right? And so God, I did my part, boom. What are you gonna do for me? What are you gonna do for me? Here's here's what I see. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, listen, we sure hope our God saves us. But even if he doesn't, if he doesn't, our obedience is not dependent upon him rescuing us. Our faith isn't transactional. Here's the question that we have to ask. Somehow, way, sometimes Christianity is painted in this picture, is that God exists for your, for my benefit. God's out there, here I am, and he just exists to make my life better, to take away all pain, all discomfort. He exists for me. But God does not exist for me. I exist for him. I exist to follow, to worship, and to love him. And what he gives me doesn't really matter. God does not exist for me. I exist for him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, listen, we don't know what's going to happen. We've got faith and we've got hope, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we face pain. I had, with my wife Jenny, an absolutely sacred moment this week. There is a a family in our church, and um, I think she's a couple years younger than I am, and she was diagnosed with cancer many months back. And so many people have been praying thousands and thousands of prayers we've prayed. And just like, you know, this beautiful, precious family, and she's lived her life so well. She exercised. She ate right. She's followed and loved Jesus. I mean, she's just done everything right. And the cancer's gotten worse. And we got a call this week. They said, can you come down? We don't know how long she has left. So I don't know if I can get through this. So I walk into their living room, right? That's the three members of the family. And Jenny and I... are just shocked. I don't even, I have a hard time getting out of prayer because I'm experiencing something that's absolutely sacred. I'm experiencing this very concept. These are three people that have prayed and pleaded and done everything right. And they have hoped that God would bring healing. They have hoped that God would restore. Instead of being angry and frustrated and disappointed, there was this profound sense of we don't understand why, but we still trust him. We still follow him. We still have hope that one day she will be healed. She will be whole. It might be on this other side of eternity. And when you're in a place where people aren't transactional in their faith, when they truly just, God, we don't get it. You don't exist for me. I exist for you. My love for you is not dependent upon what you bless me with. I'm going to love you regardless of what happens. I'm going to bow to you alone. Matter the pain that I face. I got a text early Saturday morning and she passed away. And she was living out this concept. It was sacred. It was beautiful. Here's the, the third and final thing. It has to do with the fire. And it's simply this. Is that God is he's present in the fire. He is there. I mean, the, the whole thing is a little bit comical, right? So you have this furious Nebuchadnezzar and throws the guys in. His best soldiers get scorched and you know, what are they expecting? They're expecting screams. They're expecting if you see anything, you see bodies writhing on the ground. He says, "Well, They're walking around. One, two, three, four. And one of them doesn't look normal. All the world's happening? And they're, 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 they're walking with this, is it an angel? Is it, is it God himself? We're, we're not exactly sure. But they're walking around. Why would you be walking around? It seems like they're conversing. And what's burned off? The bonds. The bonds are burned off, but their clothes aren't. And they're walking around. What do you do when you're walking around with an angel or God or whoever it is in the middle of a fiery furnace? Like, hey, uh. We got marshmallows? I mean, you, you know, like, what do you do? You, so they're just they're walking around, and Nebuchadnezzar is like, what in the world is going on? Come out, guys, come out. They come out and he goes, Listen, your God, okay, I get it. I threw you in, and he he entered into the fire with you. Here's the deal about Marduk, the Babylonian god. We, we talked a little bit last week about the hid their creation myth. The, the gods have broken out into war, Marduk won, and the Earth is created through the body of one of the other gods, and then Marduk disappears, and Marduk, the Babylonian gods, are many, but they are not involved in human affairs. They've disappeared to another realm. They don't interact with human beings. And here's what he sees about the Hebrews God. He joins them in the fire. You know what deism is? Deism is a perspective that says, yes, I believe that God exists. There is some higher power. There's some God. But he's not personal and he's not involved. So he was maybe originally involved in the making of this world. But since then, he's backed off and he is a casual observer of what happens on planet Earth. That's deism. There are far too many followers of Jesus who become deistic in their perspective. Yeah, he's out there. I totally believe in him but he's not involved, he's not engaged. This, this story tells me God is in the fire. In fact, the New Testament, the story of Jesus tells me that more than anything else. We're about ready to celebrate Christmas. What is Christmas? Think of how it starts. God's saying, I've been separated from my people. I'm jealous for them. There's no way for them to repair themselves. There's no way for them to reach holiness. So I'll descend. I'll be a part of their world. This is how we'll do it. We'll have God become a man. And we're going to find a teenage girl. And she's going to carry this. God-man within her, and she's engaged, and everybody in her village is going to look at her as she walks around pregnant, and unmarried woman, and it's scandalous, and they whisper, and she, he's raised in this environment that he's an illegitimate child. And then he'll live his life and he will experience everything that a human being can experience. Hebrews says this we don't face anything that God can't identify with because Jesus knows rejection, he knows pain, he knows loneliness, he knows hurt, he knows physical pain, intellectual pain, psychological pain. He understands it all. And then here's what God will do He'll be mistreated, he'll be brutally beaten. He'll take all the punishment that human beings deserve on his shoulders and he'll die on a cross, humiliated before the Roman government. Jesus enters the fire. He's not immune to human pain. I don't know what your fire is. There's probably dozens of different types of fires that we're experiencing. Financial fires, anxiety, fear, depression, relationships dissolving, whatever it is. You're in the fire and you're thinking, I don't know if I can make it and it hurts. And God, are you really there? And there may be a lot of smoke and there may be a lot of heat. But here's the one thing that I know is that God is in the fire with us. He's walking with you. And he will never leave you alone. And he says, I'm here, worship me, even in the midst of Babylon, I'll never leave you. Will you pray with me? Lord, the fundamental question that every human being has to deal with, who or what will I worship? Who or what will I worship? And if we don't decide anything, we'll begin to worship something. It's inevitable. I want to make space for anyone in the room. I'm not asking, do you believe that Jesus was an actual historical figure? No, I'm asking a bigger question than that. Are you going to bow your knee to Jesus? And when you do that, you denounce that there is any other God in your life. Say, I look to Jesus for salvation. I look to Jesus for my sense of purpose and identity. I look to Jesus for forgiveness. I bow my knee to him. If you have not formally done that, I'm going to invite you right now. It's going to take courage. But would you boldly just raise your hand and wave at me. I'm bowing my knee to Jesus. Yes, sir. Yes. 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 All of you right there. Yes. Young man. In the very back. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Your son. Yeah. Your daughter right there. He loves you. In the back. Yep. Yeah. And there as well. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Over here. Wonderful. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, both of you guys. If you're in the balcony, if that's you, would you please wave at me? They're on the floor, yeah. Okay, yeah. I see you. Yeah. You're his. Okay, both of you. All three of you. Four, five, six, seven, eight of you in that front top row. You're his, you're forgiven. Okay, right down here. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And Lord, regardless of what happens, we will serve you. We are made for you. Amen, amen. Hey, would you applaud a whole bunch of people that just raised their hand. For everybody to raise their hands, we just want to tell you we're so proud of you. It is a big step. Go to one of these "I Have Decided" banners and get a free Bible. We want to help you get started. One last thing. One last thing. Do you guys know that it's Veterans Day today? They're great. So we wanted to say to all of the men and women who have served in different capacities, thank you, thank you, thank you. We value. You. And out in the table, we have. There's these bands. Um, they for veterans or you can grab one and give to a veteran that you know to say thank you we've got small groups and somebody came up with a list of everybody who's giving away a free meal if you're a veteran today you might want this you might want this so all vets thank you there's some support there's a gift out there for you god bless you guys have a great week